everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm very pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. April is National Poetry Month, and I've put together a four-part series to explore the relationship between poetry and mythology that I really think you're going to enjoy. I'm going to kick that off this week with the replay of the How to Read a Poem conversation that I had with Philip Rosenberg earlier this year. It's a jam-packed half hour, so we're going to have to turn to that. So please check out Myth in the Mojave on Facebook for details on upcoming shows. Today we're going to talk about how to read a poem. And to that end, I've got the assistance of local poet and songwriter Philip Rosenberg. Philip spent a lot of time in Nashville and Atlanta and Los Angeles and now here in Joshua Tree studying the art and craft of both poetry and songwriting. And I'm really thrilled to have him here today because he certainly knows much more about how to read a poem than I do. Now, you may be asking yourself why we would be talking about this on a myth program. Well, first of all, many ancient myths are poems. Homer's Odyssey, for example, the Norse poetic Ada, and the Sumerian myths of Inanna and Dumazi and Gilgamesh, some of which I told on this program last fall. All of these old stories were also uh, poems and really originally songs or hymns. Now, today we typically tell our stories in prose, but the link between mythology and poetry is still very vital and relevant, and that link is metaphor. An understanding of metaphor and metaphorical truth is essential to understanding mythology and experiencing its power. As Joseph Campbell says, quote, mythology is not a lie. Mythology is poetry. It is metaphorical. It has well been said that mythology is the penultimate truth. Penultimate because the ultimate cannot be put into words. It is beyond words, end quote. So Campbell tells us that mythology is poetry. And the link between these two, metaphor, is very important because metaphors reach beyond what is known into the mystery. If we learn to use and understand metaphor, we can understand the power of mythology. And one way to do that is by studying poetry. In fact, we're really kind of following Campbell here because he also said that studying poetry was one way that we can experience the transcendent. And I know that I've certainly found this to be true. So in this conversation today with Philip Rosenberg, we're going to talk about how to read a poem and open the door to new truths and forms of experience. So first of all, Philip, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, (laughs) I know you have a lot planned for us. Is there anything that you'd like to add by way of introduction to what I've just laid out? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have an opportunity to talk a little bit about poetry. 
I would say that that's a wonderful introduction to poetry and to the connection between myth and poetry. The only thing I might add to that is that myth and poetry are alike exactly as you say because they both employ metaphor. And metaphor is so important in our understanding of the world. But they're also different in an important way. And the way that they're different is that myth and the mythologies are communal expressions. Whereas poetry, the way we understand poetry and the way we use poetry is more of an individual expression. And I think that's important to remember. Well, so I love that you immediately went to bring out the difference, the difference between the two. Why is that important? Well, both, both forms, mythology and poetry, they tell a story in one way or another. A myth tells our story. A poetry tells my story. And I just think that's important because, because without story, we really don't have a way to communicate. When I tell you my story, you can relate to that because there's some connection between my story and your story. There's something about my experience of this life in this world that's both similar and different to yours. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how we communicate with one another. And that's how we share with one another what our experiences are. Through, the, through these stories. And the one thing that you said, I guess, that I want to expand a little bit upon is, because I've heard this before from, from other poets and people who talk about poetry, poetry speaks to things that cannot otherwise be spoken about. There are things in our experience, mis- mysteries, that people call them mysteries. If you think about the the big questions. What is infinity? What is God? What is all of the things that, what is love? All of these things that we can talk about and talk about and talk about and do and have our own beliefs about. And yet they continue to be in a way controversial. They continue to be things that we can't all agree on in the same way. Why is that? Poetry is a way we can talk about those things. There's, there's a way in which poetry elevates the conversation to a level beyond what can, we can speak about in any other way, discursively, in the sense that, and I had to look this up, what is discursive? Because I was reading Northrop Fry the other day, who I really like, and he was saying poetry is different than discursive writing. Well, what is discursive writing? Discursive writing is the kind of writing you would read in a magazine article or you would read in a newspaper. It tells you about something in somewhat of a linear way, whereas poetry speaks in a different way. It's not discursive in that sense. Poetry is a way of talking about things, and we're going to have some examples of this, I think, later on in our our program, that is different, that causes you to make leaps in your thinking that you wouldn't necessarily make just in reading an essay for instance. Right, right. And so I would just say to close the loop there that that difference is the reliance on metaphor. Not that metaphors don't get used in discursive writing, but the creation of metaphors, new metaphors, and the reliance on the metaphor to move you from what you know to a suggestion of what's past, what's beyond that, is at the heart of poetry. And also the proper understanding of mythology. Well, so 
you have a couple of your favorite poems with you, right? That you're going to I, I use do. as I examples. Do have a couple, yes. Okay, great. So, do you want to share one of those with us, and then maybe we can start kind of approaching this? Okay, how do you how do you read it? How do you use it? Sure. Okay. Sure. I think I'd like to begin with since we're talking about how to read a poem, I'd like to read one that is from one of my favorite poets, Billy Collins, that is, in fact, addressing this issue of how to read a poem. (laughs) And Billy Collins, for those of you who are not familiar with him, was uh, our National Poet Laureate for several years. So this poem is called Introduction to Poetry. So here it goes. I ask them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide, or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out, or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. That's a great way to start this program. (laughs) (laughs) Because as I hear that poem, it speaks directly to the dilemma that face many poets, poems, mythologists, and myths today which is that they're not taken seriously or their their truth is not understood because they aren't discursive and literal. One of the things about this poem that I like is this line, or press an ear against its hive. Well, what is that about press an ear against its hive? Well, it could mean a lot of things, but I get this sense of this buzzing, this something inside of it that is moving that, you know, you have to pay attention to. But then at the end, when he says all they want, when he's talking to people about how to, how to read a poem, all they want to do is, what does he say? But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. So when we sit down to read a poem and we're thinking in our mind, well, what does this poem really mean? That's really not the best way to start because a poem is going to mean different things to different people. And a good poem has a certain ambiguity to it that's built in to the writing, that's built into the poem. And one of one Galway Cannell once said that the poet is often the last one to know what his work is about. The poem is has, the poet has no more authority about what the poem means than the person who reads it and what they take away from it. So it's important to realize that you're going to have your own experience from a poem that's completely valid, independent of what the poet themselves tried to necessarily express in it. Oh, well, that's interesting. So in reading a poem, you want to allow yourself that leeway. You want to sit down with an open mind and have your experience of the poem independent of what you think the poem means or meant to the poet. And that's an important piece of it, I think. 
Okay. Well, so maybe that's a good place to start then. When you're going to read a poem, what is the first thing that you do? Well, I did a little bit of research on this <laughs> because I'd never really kind of thought about it in that way. Well, what's the first thing you do and then what do you do? But I did a little bit of research to go, well, what's been written about this? About what's the first thing you do when you read a poem? And I found some things that were interesting. And here was an, some instruction about the first thing you do when you read a poem. The first thing you do when you read a poem is read it aloud. Read it aloud and experience it you know, in your body because you're reading aloud. Because a lot of times when you're reading a poem, what's in a poem, there's a certain meter, even to poems that are not written you know, what we call metrically or with rhyme, there is something in the body that happens when you read a poem aloud. There's a lot of language that is used that comes alive when you read it aloud that doesn't show up the same way when you read it silently and you're just hearing it in your mind. So the first thing is, read the poem out loud. And I'd say the, the second thing is, read it again and perhaps again. It may be only after three or four readings of the poem that things begin to take shape for you. If you read a poem one time and it doesn't immediately jump out to you, and then you move on, you go, I'm not really sure what that's about, and you move on, you might be robbing yourself of a really good, important experience. It may be only after the second or third time or even more of reading the poem that suddenly a door opens. Right. So reading them out loud. Well, I know that has has been very powerful for me. Walking around in the morning, reciting poem that has captured me is a, a very invigorating and powerful experience. I think part of the art of being a good poet is using language that has a rhythm and an important uh, coherence independent of what any of the words mean. I mean, poetry is a lot about sound, isn't it? Oh, it is a lot about sound. And some poems, I don't have an example with me today, but some poems are written about sound. I mean, they use a lot of alliteration. They use a lot of assonance. Alliteration being where the, the consonants are repeated intentionally. Assonance being where the vowels are repeated, the sounds of the vowels are repeated um, in order to give a certain feeling to, this, to that. And you don't really catch that if you're not reading it aloud. Mm-hmm. When you're reading it aloud, suddenly those things begin to really come alive for you. Okay, so the first thing that you should do when you read a poem is read it out loud and read it more than once. Read it several times, you know, and and look for this feeling of of fullness or opening or enlivening or some kind of physical reaction to the poem. So so then what, Philip? Well, another thing you can do when you read a poem is to consider the context. What do you know about the author? Now, this is a little contrary to what I was saying before about, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, what the author put into the poem may not be what you take out of it. But sometimes it's a good idea to understand a little bit about the poet when you read a poem. And I want to give an example of that. Okay. Because it will shed, it could shed some light on what's going on. So this is a poem, this is part of a poem by William Butler Yeats 
William Butler Yeats was writing in the early part of the 20th century. He was Irish, and this is a poem that is called Circus Animals Desertion. I'm only going to read the last portion of this poem, and it's a poem that has a lot of meaning for me personally, and I did not understand the context of this poem until I until long after it had been one of my favorite poems for some time. Those masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began. Old kettles, old bottles, and a broken can. Old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Now, in the spirit of what we just talked about, I'm going to read that one more time. Those masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began, old kettles, old bottles, and a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till, now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. So what is that about? Well, the title of the poem is Circus Animals Desertion. And what I found out about this poem is it was written by, by William Butler Yeats late in his life. He already had had quite a career. And he was referring in this poem to the images. He says, those masterful images because complete. Well, he, at this point in his life, and again, this is late in life when he wrote this poem, was looking back at his work and realizing that those masterful images that he had used in his early poetry, he could no longer rely on that. And for many years, he had felt like he had been relying on his old images, his old work, the, his old themes, all of the things that he had developed when he was young. He had been working and working and working to the point where now he had to let them go. He could no longer, he had boxed himself in, in a way, to a certain set of ideas and a certain set of themes and a certain way of looking at things that constrained his creativity. And when he talks about the circus animals desertion, the circus animals are these old images, these old themes, and they were deserting him now. There was a way where he says, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone chop of the heart. He has to start over again. There's a way in which he can no longer rely on the old ways of writing poetry, the old ways of talking about things. And he has to find something new. And not only does he have to find something new, but where he has to find it is down. He has to go down somewhere. I must lie down where all the... La lie down. Lie down where all the ladders start. So to go up to these masterful images means climbing a ladder. But where, does, where, does you, where do you start? You start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. And what do you find there? You don't find masterful images. You don't find beautiful things. 
or at least not beautiful in the sense that we think of beauty as a refined representation of something. You find old kettles, old bottles, a broken can, old iron, the old broken things is where you have to go in order to find a place to start to talk about the things that are going to have meaning for you and for other people. And so knowing this about Yeats really made a difference for me in understanding this poem. Yes, I can see that. And I think that for many of us who are in midlife, this is very important idea. Important in understanding maybe the poem and also in being encouraged and finding inspiration in Yeats's process and life as a poet as well as his poetry. I don't know. I mean, I'm always encouraged when I find that people who were very accomplished at something nevertheless found themselves questioning and reinventing and digging deeper, the going down that you're talking about at a certain point in midlife, because I think we have that opportunity to revisit our gifts and contributions and accomplishments and make more of them, make something of them that we can only make by virtue of our maturity and life experience. So I'm with you there in terms of of loving this poem, and I, I think it's a wonderful one for you to have brought to this program today. So we've got the first two steps. One, well, really I think there were three. So the first one, first thing you said was give yourself permission to understand and experience the poem in your own way, independent even of the intentions of the poet. Number two, read the poem out loud and read it out loud more than once. Kind of give yourself an opportunity to have a physical reaction and feeling of expansion or opening, probably, from the poem. And then the third one, somewhat paradoxically made, if you really are liking the poem, maybe find out something about the context in which it was written, because it did come from a specific moment and time in the voice of a particular poet. Is that a good summary? I think so, yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So do you have another instruction for us along those lines? Well, one thing that you can consider when you read a poem, you can ask yourself, is this appealing, if it's a poem that you like, a poem that you are finding some affinity for, is it appealing to your intellect or is it appealing to your heart? Is it something that is causing you to think about something or is it something that's causing you to experience a feeling? And why is that difference significant? Well, because it's another way into the poem. Okay. I mean, you're looking for ways into the poem. A poem is a compressed form. Um, It's another thing that differentiates it from the kinds of things we normally read in everyday life. And you're trying to find ways to open it up. You're trying to find doors. You're trying to find windows. You're trying to find openings. And if you get a sense of its of whether it's a thinking or a feeling experience, that's one door. That's one way into the poem because then you can follow that. You can go 
you can start to you can start to go well why am i having this line of thought what is it what is and you can think about it or you can say you know i'm just finding this this is an emotional experience for me i'm feeling sad or i'm feeling i'm feeling enthralled or i'm feeling um whatever it is and you can pursue that and ask the question why or you can just find yourself drop allow yourself to drop into that a little deeper Mm -hmm. so looking for doors another way to find a door into a poem is to pay attention to what faculty it's appealing to whether or not you're having an emotional or intellectual experience of the poem that's right and and I know we don't have a lot of time left, but there is another poem I'd like to read, actually two. Oh, please do. So, and for the, for the purpose of saying this, that some poems are more difficult than others. Some poems are not going to appeal to you at all. Maybe because you just can't find a way into it. They don't feel accessible. And you may read them a couple of times and still go, you know, I'm just not getting it here. And that's fine. And so you move on to another poem. But sometimes you do, sometimes you find poems that are much more open to you and you read them and you know what they are about right away. And and I want to read you one like that, that I just find delightful. And then I want to read you one that I found much more difficult, but was rewarded by spending some time with it. Okay. So... First of all, here's one that I found, and it's a Billy Collins poem. It's called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. As if, one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag, and even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps. The address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can recall, well on your own way to oblivion, where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder... You rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. So as I age, I find that my memory is not what it used to be. And what a beautiful and elegant way to express that experience. This poem, again, was called Forgetfulness, and the poet was Billy Collins. So that's a poem that I found accessible. It was easy. For, I knew what he was talking about, and it's expressed right in the title. Now let me share one with you that is not as accessible, but one that, again, I found very rewarding by spending some time with. This is a poem that, that you, Catherine, and I read together and found a way to open it up 
together. Mm -hmm. But the poem is called High Desiring. It's by a poet, A.R. Ammons, A-M-M-O-N-S. High Desiring. This is a poem where the title does not immediately reveal the subject. Though not the Savior wished, oblivion saves. Rememberers disperse, and the grave, neutral as a moon, rides in no difference image or word can make. United indeed at last, grave, earth, father, child, there is no further use, no scalded eye, but the sweet of no sweet at all, the perpetual song, words and music troubled a while. We've run out of time, so we're not going to be able to explore that one today, unfortunately. I hope all of you out there have enjoyed this brief little primer on how to read a poem. So one more thing I would add. (laughs) Yeah? And that is that give the poem a chance. If you read a poem the first time or two and it doesn't immediately open up to you, give it a chance before you move on. And if after a few readings it doesn't seem to do that, then then fine. But some poems require a little more effort than others. And sometimes the effort is worth it. That's good advice in life generally, I think. So thank you very much, Philip, for walking us through this little primer on how to read a poem. And I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation next week, where we're going to talk a little bit more about how poetry and mythology are the same and different. So that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Special thanks to Travis Rosenberg for my theme music, and as always, to you for listening. Please tune in next week, and in the meantime, happy mythmaking, and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.